welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to have you with us yet again. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, and I'm joined with my by my friends as I am each each uh, time we record a show. Uh, but first, let me give you a little bit of background on me, and then I'll kick it over to Tom, and then we'll go to Glenn, and then we'll jump into the subject of the day, which is I think something that uh, I, I imagine we'll get a, a fairly visceral response. Anyway. So, uh, as I noted, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been an, a, a real estate investor. I've been a, a, a home improvement contractor. I've been a college professor teaching philosophy, and I've written a number of things. And the most recent book uh, that has been published that I've written is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. And I've got another book coming out on Tom Bombadil. But enough about me. Tom. Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I actually have a class that is being offered through the Fight, Feast, Laugh guys, um, we'll, and it's, it's going to be a great class. Um, the idea is, what does it mean really to enter into theological battle with the gods of our age? Ooh. And so we'll be looking at sort of foundations and theological analysis. We'll look at certain trends in the way in which we can engage them, um, both in um, intellectually, uh, spiritually, and and our our faith practices. So that'll be kind of the aim. Good stuff, and you can sign up for that at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, right? That's correct. All right, great, good stuff. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I've got a book coming out, uh, due out on Election Day. Yeah. Uh, it's called Slaying Leviathan. Uh, it's on resistance theory and limited government, mm-hmm. uh, based on a much earlier podcast, right, actually. Right. And uh, along with that, I'm going to be in Moscow, Idaho, on October 30th, doing a bunch of lectures at New St. Andrews. Good stuff. So if you want to be a part of that, if you live out in the north west and you thought to yourself i just gotta see if glenn sunshine's beard is for real <laughs> then, then you can you can contact the folks at moscow uh, in moscow at new st andrews and uh, and they'll tell you it's real but you can actually learn about when he's speaking and you can see it for yourself you can be a, a witness to that 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 uh, that the glory as it pours out of out of Glenn's face. <laughs> you know, at, at the conference, I was compared to Gandalf more than once. <laughs> well, that's great stuff. Anyway, uh, today it's my day, and uh, I read a book review uh, in First Things in the latest issue. This is the November issue, two thousand and twenty. And uh, it's the first review. It's a fairly lengthy v- review, and it's uh, the title of the review is po- is post-constitutional America. Post-constitutional America. Now, uh, we might feel like we live in a post-constitutional uh, state, and we may joke about it, but there is actually uh, a school of thought. That has advanced the advanced the the notion that 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 this is not just a feeling, but this is a reality. And uh, the book that uh, is being reviewed is uh, uh, a book entitled "The Stakes: America at the Point of No Return" by Michael Anton. Now, the guys. Uh, it's by the way, it's published by uh, Regnery. It's 500 pages long. I've ordered it just based on this review. And. Uh, 
and it comes out of uh, the uh, Claremont uh, School in uh, at uh, McKenna College in Claremont at the Claremont Institute in Southern California. Now, in the in the world of of you know uh, conservative intellectual institutions, you've got you know different different institutions that you can look at. And and some of them have a, have a fairly high profile. So, you know, an, an institution like National Review, the magazine. I mean, most people. Oh, we got some beer coming here. We got one coming for Glenn. Glenn's got one of those pumpkin ales with the spicy rim. And Lynn. With, all right, David. And uh, Tom's going to get another one. So, you know, we can think about publications like. National Review, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would say in the world of in newspapers, at least the editorial section of the Wall Street Journal, we're not sure about the rest of the paper, but, uh, you, you know, you've got publications, and then you, you go to um, publishing houses like Regnery or Encounter Books, mm-hmm. then you go to, you know, higher education, you go to Hillsdale or Grove City College, our friends at New St. Andrews, you know, is, in, you know these institutions, and then you have think tanks. Now, think tanks are kind of, um, you know, sort of a, 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 I don't know exactly how to, how to sort of fit them into sort of the traditional sort of framework, because they're kind of a newer phenomenon. I think, and you know, we think about like the Heritage Foundation, or maybe the American Enter- Enterprise Institute, or the Discovery Institute out of Seattle. Uh, but the Claremont folks are another one of those heavy hitters in the world of, you know, conservative think tanks. And, and the conservative think tanks, kind of have a different stripe. Like when I think about the American Enterprise Institute, it's kind of libertarian economics, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. When I think about the Heritage Foundation, I think about kind of the, the, the 800-pound gorilla. They're the, they're the ones who are always, you know, sponsoring the big events in Washington. But when I think about, when I think about Claremont, Claremont Institute, and I, by the way, I've written for their online publication. Um, when I think about those guys, I think about Strauss, Leo Strauss. Yeah. Straussian theory, and uh, and and so the, this this fellow Anton is coming out of what is known as sort of the West Coast school of Straussianism, and uh, and let me let me kind of give us some, something to work with here as we talk about this. Um, so what what Anton and his uh, mentor Jaffa uh, Harry Jaffa. Uh, another West Coast Strauss, and what, what they've advanced is is the, is the notion that uh, we have our our written constitution, with the, with the, uh, with, which they refer to as the 1787 institution. You know, when you have to, you know, name it that way, they're they're about to give you some information about something else. So, you know, we they can't just call it the Constitution. Uh, and according to to uh, you know Jaffa and Anton and and, and Leo Strauss, uh, what you have with the original Constitution is an is a is a document which in, in, which endeavored to uh, distill uh, in written form eternal truths mm-hmm. about human nature, about natural right, and so forth. These things are just true; they're not merely uh, the products of history of sort of the development of thought. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, his, historically contingent. They're, they're things that are true. So like when we think about Strauss, you know, Strauss is known for his work on natural right in particular and trying to recover particularly 
uh, classical theories, class, classic, classical sources when it comes to political theory, especially Platonist thinking. Uh, and so, you know, he's, when you think of Platonism, you think about eternal things. You know, you think about the forms, things that are just simply true uh, at all times. And the change that we see in the world, historical process, is actually sort of the, the process by which these eternal truths uh, come into a greater, I guess, embodiment at different times and then decay and, and uh, pass away. So what you have is an eternal standard and then you have different epochs in human history in which you see a kind of a waxing and a waning, a waxing and a waning, kind of in a cyclical way, but, but in the same time you've got this, this body of re or this reality that doesn't change. Well, uh, as we know, this way of thinking is the minority view today. Once upon a time, it was the majority view. And uh, what, what uh, Anton and Jaffa and, and, and uh, Strauss uh, present to us is that we live in a world now where uh, we have a different way of thinking about reality. Uh, and consequently, we have a new approach to sort of... Uh, government and how government works. So with, uh, you know, the sort of the first way of thinking, you know, the, the original way that our founding fathers thought, you had um, a, uh, well, let me just go ahead and read to you some portions here um, from this review, and then we can respond to this a little bit. So right now we're describing the, the, the frame of mind that our, the founders uh, had who framed our founding documents. So Anton holds that the American constitutional regime is committed to natural human equality as articulated in the Declaration of Independence. Okay, so and that's distinct from some of the things that we've talked about in many of our podcasts, the egalitarianism, which uh, tries to guarantee an equality of outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the kind of equality that we're talking about here is the kind of equality that I think many of our listeners think is the commonsensical way of thinking about equality, namely that, you know, we're created equal, we should be given up, you know, sort of the freedom to develop our gifts and, and allow, you know, you know, make room for people to, to enjoy the benefits of their virtuous behavior and the consequences of their vicious behavior. <laughs> you know, if you're lazy, you ought to pay for it. If you're, if you're honest, you ought to be rewarded, that kind of stuff. Anyway, so um, that's uh, what you have with our, with our uh, you know, founding in, in sort of the ideals that are enshrined in our, our founding documents. But today we have a, a, a uh, we've lost faith in these eternal verities and uh, and consequently, there's developed a different approach to thinking about how government should operate. So when you're, when you're talking about um, the original, you know, sort of uh, framework, um, that, uh, you know, what we're told here in this review, West Coast Straussianism, as I noted, this is where, you know, is what refers to the, uh, the Claremont School of Thought, uh, uh, it, this, this, this school of thought understands the principle of human equality as implying a natural right to freedom from arbitrary rule. 
and that government uh, should exercise its authority through the consent of the government, of the governed. Inequality entails self-government. And then I'm just going to continue to read here for a little bit. But as the Declaration of Independence indicates, consent of the government of the governed is not an end in itself. The end of government is to secure natural rights and effect safety and happiness. In other words, the common good. Defending the common good requires defending equal natural rights, which are given uh, determination in the 1787 Constitution. So he, he goes on to say, and this is, this is the reviewer, and the reviewer's name is uh, Nathan Pinoski. And Pinoski goes on to say, uh, because the cause of constitutionalism is inseparable from the cause of equal natural rights, unwavering loyalty to the Constitution is required, and Americans should work within its framework to achieve the common good. But working within that framework is possible only when the prevailing body of Americans affirms the principle of equality. So, we have a framework, we need to have people who have bought into it, and within that framework we pursue the common good as uh, we recognize the equal rights of citizens to determine their, their, their lives uh, and pursue the good that they, you know, that they want to uh, pursue both you know, in their, their personal lives but also uh, more publicly. Anyway, this is, this is the background. Okay. So we haven't gotten to the post post constitutional situation, <laughs> but I, before I go any further, I've been doing a lot of talking and some reading. I don't know if you guys have anything you want to say yet. Yeah, one of the arguments in slaying Leviathan, um, actually the in some ways almost the punchline of the book, is that when you take a look at the development of Christian political theology. Um, reflections on the nature of government, on human rights, those kinds of things. You see a, an evolution in a complex set of interrelations between a, a bunch of different ideas that really ultimately come together in John Locke, although he's beginning to start secularizing it a bit. But it reaches its ultimate expression in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Right. The founding documents of America really are you know, even without explicit reference to Christian sources, they are really a synthesis of a lot of thought that showed up within the Christian tradition uh, about natural rights, about the nature of government, all of those kinds of things. And it's the pinnacle, the final accomplishment of that, because after that, things start changing radically. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And the, basically the French Revolution is what ends up ultimately changing the entire focus of, of political theory in uh, the Western world. Yeah. But we'll deal with that in a bit, I think. But yeah, it's just right. worth noting that um, the argument that they're making about the uh, natural rights, unalienable natural rights, uh, that these are eternal truths, those ideas got developed over time right. really through Christian reflections on, like I said, human rights, the nature of government, the nature of life before the fall, right. all of those kinds of things. Now, I think it's important to kind of keep in mind because there is a historical, there's a story that's, that we can tell in, in terms of the development of ideas. But 
the way they understood it and the way we understand it is that is that uh, people weren't making stuff up. Right. They were discovering things. Yeah, they were trying to work out what the implications are. In the, in the case of the people I'm talking about, right. they were trying to work through what the implications of Scripture and natural reason, good reason, working together, what, what, what conclusions do you reach from that? And it takes time to work out all the implications of that. You just, it doesn't just happen instantly. But just like a, so, it's just like a mathematical formula, you could say, by analogy, that when you arrive at the solution, you're not just making uh, a statement right. about how this all works out as a, as a formula. You're actually saying something about reality. Yeah, and, and they, they would certainly, the people that I'm looking at would certainly have made that argument that, you know, this is just the, the way God structured the universe. This is natural law. It's right, all of those right. kinds of things that are woven into the fabric of reality. Right, right. So, so you, you've made an allusion to what comes next, and we're going to get there in a second, but you have anything you want to say, Tom? Well, yeah, what, what I think you have going on also is, I mean, remember that, that what went into, the, especially the development of, of the American Constitution, was, I mean, you, you did have a lot of sort of religious um, battling going on, um, but there was a, there was a, a very strongly shared consensus which they were trying to crystallize which ended up being as we've said something of a philosophical creed if you will um, creed in the sense that that this is something confessed to be reality right but it was taking sort of those, those things about our created nature yeah um, it was it wasn't an attempt to turn it into naturalism right and it wasn't an attempt to to emphasize natural religion versus um, um, confessional religion. Mm -hmm. um, that came later, even though some of the, those, you know, some of the ground was softened with that kind of move. But it was an attempt to show that, the, you know, the reality consensus, which, you know, Christendom yep. shared, um, can, and, and had, had been brought to a, a point of insight, um, can be best represented in, in this kind of, these kind of eternal truths about human nature, um, society, and, and, and justice um, within it. Uh, I think one of the things you have that's interesting here, though, is, is this older notion of the way eternality and history Yes, um, we're going to get into that. Are related, I, and yeah. I, I was thinking of George Grant um, as well, the uh, Canadian philosopher. Who yeah, yeah. I think he was much closer to this view, and he's one of the big critics of the historicism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that came, oh, we're going to get into the historicism. Yeah, well, that's right. I didn't want to jump. <laughs> but I think of the important point here is is this way um, to kind of see that this radical shift between what we're talking about right now and what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes yeah. is of such a nature that it almost can help explain, for the most part, yeah. everything we're dealing with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let, you know, that's a, great, that's a great segue. So let me, mm -hmm. let me take you back to the article. So um, what we have here, uh, the, the uh, reviewer is, is, uh, is working with these personalities, Jaffa, Anton. He says, unlike Jaffa, Anton stresses how the contemporary American crisis originates not just in the abstract ideas of moral relativism and historicism, mm -hmm. but in the con concrete efforts to discard the written provisions of the Declaration and the Constitution. Now, this is probably a good point to, to provide a definition of, histo of historicism. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you want to give us a, a definition, Nick Glenn? Well, actually, I was going to point out that that, that would probably be helpful to, <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners. We've talked about this before. Um, I guess the easiest way to define it is to say that um, everything that we see, the argument would be of a historicist, is that everything that you see in the Declaration, in the Constitution, and so on, was simply the product of historical processes. Um, yeah. I, different ideas that people had at that particular point in time based on what came before them and all of that sort of thing. These historical processes created the ideas in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, as opposed to the ideas of the Declaration and the Constitution being reflections of something that transcend the immediate historical circumstances. That's a great, that's a great summary. And I think that when we think about this, this doesn't obviously just apply to the, to the constitutional crisis that we're in. This applies to the crisis of theology. Yes. You know, it applies to the crisis of you know, yeah. anthropology, you know, all these different things. And yeah, and a quick word on, on my side of it as a historian. Yeah. It's important to understand that, you know, like in, in um, Slang Leviathan, what, I, what I'm talking about there are people who are wrestling with, like I said, for them it's a matter of good reason and scripture. They're wrestling with it, though, specifically to try to tease out what reality is. Yes. They're not seeing this as, as an evolution. They're trying to see deeper into reality. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get at these eternal verities. Right. Yeah, and, so. and, and um, they're, they're different. Uh, I, mean, it's a, I mean, one could look at this question. I think one of the most important areas of looking into the development of historicism is actually through hermeneutics, the field, yeah. um, especially, yeah. um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Dilthey, but some of the earlier uh, thinkers of, of hermeneutics were some of the first historicists in, as it entered in. It didn't really start in the social sciences. It started with, with people reading texts, reading scripture. Schleiermacher could be argued as one of the first historicists. So, um, and uh, Hermann is another uh, major figure. But Hegel, Even earlier you get Semler. Yeah, yeah. And he Hegel in particular is important here because Hegel, you know, as a reaction to a lot of things going on in the philosophical world, if we think metaphysically for a minute, and uh, forgive me for this, um, but, but the way the older picture was for Christianity as well as what we're just talking about here is um, being is permanent, eternal. Right. Um, it, 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 has, it has nothing about it that is in development. It's perfectly realized. But it is in genuine um, relation to um, the creaturely and the becoming but in a way in which it's the creaturely that is always dependent on the eternal, not right. the eternal dependent on the creaturely. Right. Well, these get fused, and so the eternal is becoming through... Uh, the eternal being is now being defined right. as becoming. Right. And so that means his, the, the eternal truths are not stagnant, permanent things, but they are themselves in, in, in process. process. Of, yep. and process, so, process theology. Process theology. Open theism, right. all and the that no, kind of nature stuff. of no true self, tra the right. self, yeah. 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 So, so to, to try to bottom line that, there is no fixed 
I mean, God himself is not fixed. That's, That's right. right. God a, himself is constantly in process, constantly becoming changing. Becoming Is constantly becoming as yeah. opposed to simply being. Being. He's just, yeah. he's growing up. Yeah. Right. You know? And, and the thing that is remarkable about that is that it reverses contingency. Yes. Um, it, it used yes. to be that that the physical world, the world that we live in, was dependent on God, was contingent, That's was right. dependent on God. Now, increasingly, it's going the other way around, that we're seeing God as being contingent on what's going on in this world. And truth, beauty, and goodness, too. And so, therefore, right. truth is not static or et- eternal in the sense, whatever continuity it has, it just means it shares a, a continuous identity. Right. With what went before it, but it, but it's always becoming. And this is why you hear figures like um, Obama or or Hillary um, Clinton, for example, always talking about, well, I'm evolving on that idea. Yeah, that's right. Which gives them an ability to say, well, you know, I hold back, to the truth, but yeah, it's but, where the truth is going. That's right. You know, when I supported the, you know, Defense of Marriage Act, you know, that's um, where I was at that time. But I've grown since then. Yeah. And so, and so to, so to, there are no contradictions, no contradictions. And so, and it, and it sounds this whole lean forward progress. These yeah. are all, um, aspects of this notion that there is no truth in the sense of, of an eternal truth that manifests itself in the contingency, the historical without being, becoming part of it to a, a truth that is literally itself in process. Well, let, let's jump back here to the review because this is a good segue again. So what, what is uh, replacing the, the, the 18 or the 1787 Constitution? What's, what's replacing it? Well, uh, we're told here that uh, aiming to describe more precisely than Jeff just how the Constitution was lost, Anton focuses on American progressivism. Uh, for a progressivism uh, is a concrete project to replace the 1887 Constitution as well as the principle of equality with a new form of government, the administrative state. Hmm. Now we've been subject to the administrative uh, state through this whole pandemic. Hmm. There have been no votes. There's been no debate on the floor of, of you know Congress about what's the best approach to, to addressing the situation. We just have a bunch of administrators telling us what to do. And, and almost uh, reveling in, in enjoyment of the arbitrary power. Power. That's right. Remember, with the, with the, the original... science. <laughs> <laughs> with the original Constitution was designed to protect us from. Now, I just want everyone out there to realize, now that we've crossed the threshold of being to becoming, <laughs> that science, too, is not a settled thing. <laughs> it is becoming, and what That's is it. contingent today, tomorrow could absolutely yeah, be 100% different, as yeah, we we're could, seeing uh, that it is. Yeah, we could overthrow gravity. <laughs> so let me go and continue to, to read here. The administrative state denies the centrality of the principle of equality and denies that the right to rule proceeds from the consent of the governed. In the administrative state, the governing class legitimate its power by appeals to expertise. Now, that's huge. A technocracy of the educated supersedes the democracy of the living and the dead. And this goes, one of the things I teach regularly in my classes is that political and economic systems always parallel each other. Yeah. So if you are going toward socialism economically, you are going toward technocracy politically and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, the, what this presents us with is a, is a constitutional crisis. We have two constitutions, 
right now. There's a written constitution, mm -hmm. and then there's the constitution that is just sort of like this ethos that has developed, kind of a, a constitution in the old sense. <laughs> so uh, instead, let me do, I may go back and read again here. During the 20th century, the expansion of this kind of government affected every nation of the West, but unlike the other modern countries, in America it did not completely remove the old regime. The, the 1787 Constitution was neither explicitly overruled nor abolished. Instead, as the 20th century wore on, the 1787 Constitution was overlaid by a second Constitution, which, recorded, uh, which accorded with the ambitions of the progressive administrative state. On this analysis, the American crisis is a constitutional crisis. Both constitutions, the written one and the implicit uh, progressive one, operate. This means that power is exercised on the basis of two uh, different understandings mm -hmm. of the right to rule, two different legitimating principles. One, the principle of equality, the other, the claim of expertise. Yeah. yeah. Now, we're. I want to back up a little bit on this and, and uh, connect this in with what I was saying earlier, that the political theory um, in the West changes dramatically with the French Revolution. Right. Because what you get in the French Revolution is a political theory based on autonomous human reason. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially exactly where you go in order to get the kind of administrative state he's talking about. It's autonomous human reason in the part of the experts, the one, the the cognoscenti, the people who know, right, right. Uh, they're the ones who determine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is just, what is unjust, what the government should be doing, what it shouldn't be doing, all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's really the descendant of the French Revolution. Yeah. Well, I think that's there's definitely a tie-in for sure. Yeah, and what you get here, of course, is yeah the shifting of authorities. Um, of course, with with classic Christianity, um, well, especially during the Reformation, you had the battle between, of course, the papacy in the West and and the Scripture principle in, in the Reformation. Um, but one of the things of the Enlightenment appeal um, to, was was sort of to you know one end pure reason or or the other sort of you know. What we can um, infer through pure, you know, uh, through reason from our senses, um, that brought an alternative authority into play, and modernity is defined, of course, by the the you know, as you know, I think uh, Lundin put it, you know, sort of nature being uh, the level of revelation, and the expert being the, the 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 authoritative interpreter of nature. Now, what is strange is we've talked about a lot is we're at a time where in many, um, in much of the trend in the West in particular, with postmodernity and, and a lot of its, its radical cousins, um, there is a complete questioning of this authority. There's an undermining of the worldview that underwrites it, modernity, the Enlightenment. But on the other hand, there is this deferral, and it is, it's a very strange relationship. And I always said the, the reason it's, it's, it's still related, and there is this kind of... Um, incoherence is because they do grow out of each other. But, but I think you have this, um, it's very selective and it's very arbitrary. Well, one, um, one, one of the things, though, that, that this, uh, this reviewer gets into is some of those contradictions yeah. and how, the, how he thinks and how uh, Anton thinks they're going to work themselves out at a practical level. So there, 
you know, sometimes I think when people maybe hear guys like us, a bunch of eggheads, <laughs> talking about the history of ideas and throwing name, you know, words around like historicism and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, let's say, how does this connect to reality? Well, I, I want you to know, you're experiencing the connection right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, there are some further uh, consequences uh, or more, you know, consequences to come that are very unpleasant. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think your book is intended to address, I think that Rod's trying to address with his book, you know, Live Not By Lies, is the inevitability of this. Of this. So I, I'm surrounded by people who are more or less what I call uh, kind of uh, static model people. And, and basically what, what they think is that there are these social or sort of disturbances that occur every once in a while, and then everything kind of settles down and kind of gets back to normal. And so we just need to just sort of like be patient, all this stuff will settle down, and then everything will go back to normal. So we shouldn't overreact. We shouldn't get concerned about this yeah. or that thing. We just need to be patient and everything will go back to normal. And these people are kind of the managerial types, and, and they don't understand that there is a world out there that's beyond their control, and they just have to, you know... <laughs> don't understand yeah, the they're, 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 <laughs> they're about to be hit with a huge wake-up call. <laughs> they are. It's, it's, almost, it's as though they've never read any history. They, you know, there were lots of people in different places in the world who had this same sort of static model view who, who you know, discovered that they were in Siberia next or in, yeah. in Auschwitz. Well, and I think that's, you know, that was one of the, you know, I don't want to go down this trail, but that's what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, ended up running up against. He, he maybe thought that was going to happen, came to the U.S., realized that's not... Um, yeah, what's he going thought, on. He thought it was just going to be a passing thing, you know, the Nazis will eventually... That, that's right, they'll removed. kind of fade out, yeah. and nope. nope. And, and so, uh, and, 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 you know, that's always... And, and of course, I, I understand something on the, just the level of, of kind of basic humanity, is you don't want to, you don't want to enter into something... Well, with, I, I think it's, I think it's, yeah. a, it's a kind of uh, yeah. a way to deal with things that bother you or things yeah, that you don't yeah. know how to handle. You just assume that, oh, this will, this will pass and that we won't have to worry yeah. about it. But, you know, what we, what we really need are people who are able to sort of see and sort of follow through with, yeah. if this is the, is, is the sort of the state of things, this is what comes next. And by the way, that's one of the things that a guy like, like Strauss or anybody who's liberally educated, who actually has read, yeah. you know, the history of political philosophy, you know, in the West with, you know, Aristotle or Plato. They, you know, it's, what's fun of, what, fun of the fun things to do, you know, you, you learn when you read Plato and Aristotle is they don't consider themselves ancients. They just really didn't have a good perspective on things, just really not oriented. To they were reality. definitely not historicists. But what, what they would say is, according to the ancients. So you get these, these aside, according to the ancients. And then they would give you all these examples. This is what happens when a democracy goes down the tubes. This is what happens when a, when a monarchy goes down the tubes. This is what happens when an aristocracy goes down the tubes. And, it, and they give you example after example after example after example. And what, what we tend to do is think, Oh, that could never be the case. You know, our situation is absolutely unique. There's never been anything yeah. like our situation. No, there there have been uh, almost. It's almost impossible. A number, <laughs> a and, number of examples. And, and actually, I mean, I think you have to be. You have to be. Uh, you know, you have to be two drinks under, if you will, <laughs> to be at a point where you are not seeing um, the exacerbation of the combination of. Technology being where it is, and um, the moral decline being where it is, 
um, to see the rapidity of... Yeah, this of, is, we've been there before. We've, we've been yeah. there before. And even things that people think are completely unprecedented, like this whole transgenderism nonsense. You go to a person like Camille Paglia, and she'll give you example after example of... Uh, of civilizations in decay, where the exact same thing happened. Happens, yeah. But right. let, let me get back to this, the, to, to, the, to the article here. Or to I think Glenn, Glenn had a. Oh, you had something you want to say? say. Um, not. Uh, we, we can get back to the article. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the number of things that just went flying by <laughs> pretty legion. But I think I think I'll pass for the moment. Right. So anyway, uh, getting back to the review, uh, all of this. Anton agrees with Jaffa and Kessler. When we go a step further, whatever its flaws, the progressive constitution was informed by a love for America. Now, what he's referring to is not the 1960s. What he's referring to is the 1920s and 30s. He's talking about people like Woodrow Wilson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, those guys. And, you know, when you think about Teddy, Mm -hmm. you know, he he considered himself a progressive, but he was a flag-waving guy progressive. He was a guy who was America first progressive. I remember he, he said something, there's no such thing as a hyphenated American. Right. You're just an American. There's no Irish American, Italian American. It's just American. But he was a progressive. So you know he he believed in the in the development and the building up of the state. You know he he wanted a strong central government, and uh, because he believed in this kind of this kind of this this whole project of of uh, you know governing you know government by by experts. Anyway, uh, by 1968, however, something new had emerged. Richard John Newhouse, which, who, by the way, was the founder of First, First Things, Things. Yeah. and by the, and, the, and the slogan of First Things is is uh, you know uh, it relates to First Things is permanent things. Hmm. You know that that's the whole idea of it. it's yeah. it's just yeah, trying it's, to recover. It's our, like first principles, first thing. Yeah, yeah, right. So he said, and the socialist Norman Thomas were already uh, uh, early witnesses at a protest against the Vietnam War. A crowd burned an American flag. Richard, said Thomas. So this is the socialist. Socialist. Richard, said Thomas. Don't they understand that our purpose is not to burn the flag, but to cleanse the flag? <laughs> so in other words, these, these older progressives were patriotic. But something happened. And that something was what we've talked about, the rise of the new left, the, the, the growth of, you know, the, you know, uh, critical, Marx, theory. Clear, critical theory and, and, and Neo-Marxism. Neo-Marxism and that kind of stuff. So, over the following decades, American institutions were constantly inflamed by one uh, or another form of anti-Americanism. A ruling class emerged that is defined as, Anton writes, by, quote, contempt and hatred for America and its history, end of quote. A self-hating American ruling class has instrumentalized and weaponized the progressive administrative state and its claims to expertise in order to destroy what is left of the American of American constitutionalism and crush the people who wish to be governed by it. Hmm. So, Red America, Red State America, do you feel like you're being crushed by the administrative state? Well, according to Anton, that's intentional. Right, and you you can't you can't pay attention to what was going on with the riots or continuing to go on, although unreported with the riots, right. without seeing that exactly as the the agenda that they're. They're not even trying to disguise it. This is what they're yeah. trying to do. That's right. That's right. So anyway, um, going on, reading a little more here. Uh, once they beat down its principle and spirit, they were content. Uh, this is referring to the older progressives. Once they beat down the principle and spirit, they were content to let the letter of it stand. In other words, the Constitution, the original Constitution. The new left's partisan fight uh, is a much more brutal war. A war not of supremacy, but of extermination. 
Their objective is revolution, to reduce the old constitution to ashes. The cause of America's crisis is not just moral relativism, historicism, or what Woodrow Wilson wrote in academic articles. <laughs> it is the revolutionary combination of, progressive, of the progressive administrative state with the flag-burning ideology of the 60s. Hmm. Let, let me tie something into this. In 2011, I think it was, might have been even earlier than that, someone wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day. <laughs> I don't remember it. And in that book, he made the point that the federal code is now so voluminous and so detailed, and it extends into so many different areas that the average American commits three felonies a day without even knowing it. Right, right, right. Now, if that is true, ask yourself the question, if you have a malevolent actor in government, how much trouble... Yeah, I'll take a headway. Same one, the same. Yeah. Okay. How, how much trouble can they possibly make for you? Yeah, can make a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you weren't guilty of three felonies a day. Right. And if they want to go after you, they will, and sure. they can get you. Sure, they sure. They can find something. There's something out there. One of the things I've been thinking mm. about is the fact with big tech, mm. is they, they're like old, you know, Jagger Hoover. Remember, you know, Hoover had, a, had something on everybody. He had something on Kennedy. You know, he had something on, you know, MLK. You know, he had something on everybody. You know, he had this, these files, yeah. you know, stuff that the, these people didn't want the general public to know. And any time, you know, he wanted them to kind of get in line, he just sent a little note. By the way... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't um, want this to be known. Yeah. But, can, can I point out that the FBI held Hunter Biden's laptop yes. for over a year and didn't reveal anything in it, even though it looks like there's a boatload of incriminating evidence there? Was the FBI actually thinking that they would hold this over the Biden administration? Ooh, that's an that's an interesting. Well, it's not like they would never do that and have oh. never done it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, what you, what you're seeing is, yeah, the the um, the ripping from um, the kind of eternal permanent things, right. um, and now there you you have a certain kind of. Um, power play sure. that is unmoored from that and has now has its own sort of historical interest, if you will. Um, and and it's, they become competitive entities in ways that, you know, I'm not saying it's never existed before in history. Um, but but it's, it, it's, it's justified now yeah. in ways that it hasn't been. That's right. That's right. It's very much a Machiavellian kind of a kind of an environment. And, and the the thing is, I mean, you, you think about it too. Is is what ends up happening to the cesspool of historicism, if you will? I mean, I, Oliver Donovan has this great point in his um, his Resurrection and Moral Order, um, where he. Uh, Thank you. Got my Headway IPA, folks. Just so you know, where he says about historicism is that if everything is is history, then there is no historical. You know. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, and there are certain people who are popular theological, you know, sources of uh, fonts of of uh, inspiration to some people. That I I sometimes wonder, do they are they just simply historicists? Yeah. And I think I mean I remember when I was at AAR some some years back, many years back. I said, well. Uh, uh, Ziegler is his, his name, a theologian. He said, uh, "We're all contextualists now," and I yeah, think his right. point was the same thing. We're all oh, yeah. historicists yeah, to, now. 
contextualism is a is a is a kind of a, a code word for that. That yeah. and and so I mean and I do understand. I mean I think Glenn kind of hinted at this point a little earlier that you know we, we can't ignore the contingent. And we do and it's one of the things that historicists have taught us is that that you know that the historical conditions that surround are significant in understanding any given given moment and expression of of the idea. Um, but they mean more than that. I don't, I don't want to go down that trail. But, but what I'm saying is what happens with this kind of relativism, this lack of larger eternal purpose, um, or even, even temporal purpose that, that, that finds its fulfillment in these ideals, um, is, is, yeah, you start to have a competitive power play develop based on these relativized expressions um, yeah, there. You know, relating to that though, I think there are some things that that this uh, that this reviewer gets into that that mm-hmm. kind of flesh that out a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know one of the more disturbing things that I see, and I think sometimes as even pastors and and theologians and, and uh, academics, we can be uh, guilty of fostering un, uh, without even wanting to, <laughs> is a kind of passivity. Uh, among people who just simply say, well, let's just let the experts tell us what's yeah, know, sort of, yeah. you know. So, like, when I think about, you know, the work we do, you know, obviously we're, we're proclaiming the truth, but the truth that I'm intending to proclaim is, is, is eternal truth, not just simply, you know, how to get through a particular problem or situation using my, my great, my, my, my sort of, uh, my, my great, you know, you know, body of, of wisdom and knowledge. What I what I what I really long to see is a, a, a greater degree of sort of general competence. Now, I don't I don't want people to be utterly dependent upon me to run their lives. You know, I've got other things to do than run your life. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I would rather not run your yeah. life. Well, and, and but it, there is a strange, and I again, I don't want to overly generalize, but there is a strange obsession I have, I'm increasingly finding between both that that, that whole world of administrative state um, and uh, and um, a certain controlling elite with those that are control freaks. And yeah, it, yeah, seems, yeah. There, it seems to be that we have a lot of control freaks culturally um, that really have a hard time with you going out to eat when you want to eat and, and putting on, you know, and, and they, they lose something about themselves. They're, they're, you know, it's a trigger, yeah, if yeah, you that's will. Right. That's right. They, 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 they derive their own sense of self by controlling you. Controlling you. Well, and, and it, it actually, I think, goes further than that. It, it goes to fundamental ideas, which maybe we can connect to historicism, of the nature of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, truth, reality, everything else is up for grabs. Yeah. And fundamentally, then, the only thing that's really real is power. Well, and, and, I, and if you can exert your power yeah. to control what people think, what they say, what they do, what they believe, you are functionally creating reality. Well, and, and, and it, it gets expressed yeah. in the evangelical world, in the church world, yeah. it's in sort of subtle shifts. So, you know, if we look at the, uh, the way, basically, churches today are are structured. You have essentially a kind of a CEO management model. Mm-hmm. Whereas historically it was a proclamation 
You know, so, so a pastor would focus upon the proclamation of the word, trying to get you in touch with eternal truths, trying to sort of lift you out of sort of the, the, the sort of the, 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 just the, you know, sort of the flow of the everyday and get you in touch with these eternal realities that give meaning to the everyday. Today, it's more along the lines of uh, managing the, the, the sort of the nodes or the, or the, uh, the, uh, the doobies in my church to do something. And so a pastor and uh, often becomes more of a manager. Mm-hmm. And management, I, I, I'm of the conviction that management has a place, but I also think that it metastasizes and that it becomes uh, evil. Yeah. When you get these control freaks who just cannot live with any ambiguity in the world, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they just have yeah. they have zero tolerance for I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I and I do think there is. I mean, spiritually speaking, I mean, it is, this is a huge aspect of the fall expressing itself through through those who need to not only assert, you know, like we we talked about the God of of you know power, if you will, the voluntaristic, you know, God. Um, and, and, and to be the definers of all reality, the determiners of what's right and wrong. I mean, it goes right back to that, right? If you, you, you know, partake of this fruit and you'll be the determiner of good and evil, if you will. Um, you, you, you have this strong sense. So I think, you know, it, it, there is an attraction there to this kind of thing just on the spiritual level. I know um, uh, uh, Boucher's work on, on Genesis um, talks about this way uh, in which the, the fall keeps repeating itself. <laughs> And, and, of course, one of the key areas is to break down that created immortal order in a way in which we create a sort of... Then, and and, and uh, Anton gets right to that. Oh, let, hit let, it, yeah. Yeah, let, let, me, let me go back to the uh, review here. How are we to live in a, in, a, in a society that's post-constitutional, where the elite are operating by a different constitution yeah. than, you know, just the rest of us? So the post, uh, in a post-constitutional situation, so now I'm reading, the old legal institutions may still exist, but they no longer function properly. The regime's fundamental principles have lost their power hmm. or are invoked to secure their opposites, as in the progressive invocation of equality to establish group rights that ensure inequality before the law. When the final breakdown of the constitutional order occurs and the constitution ceases to function, and this is where he gets kind of controversial here. Uh, prudence demands hmm. more than strict constitutionalism. In such circumstances, a responsible statement must employ power in order to secure justice, even by working outside the framework of the old institutions. Now, you got into this a while back, Glenn, when, we, when you gave us a different take on Machiavelli. Right. Yeah, this, this is this is straight up. If you actually understand what Machiavelli is doing in The Prince, this is straight up what Machiavelli was talking about. Hmm. Uh, the idea that um, in Machiavelli he was concerned about republicanism. He was actually an ardent Republican. Mm-hmm. But republicanism requires virtue. And Florence, the republic that he lived in, lacked virtue. So the question is, how do you solve that problem? You cannot have a republic without virtue, but you should have a republic answer, somebody has to step in as a despot, a prince, and revitalize the institutions necessary to produce virtue in society so that then he can pass a functioning republic onto his heirs. Right. Now, what, what Anton goes into, and that's what, this is what the stakes, this is what the title of the book is getting at, is we can have a blue Caesar or a red Caesar. <laughs> that's the choice. Yeah. Think yeah. about that. Let yeah. that sink in. 
So then he plays out, you know, what does this mean? You know, if we have this kind of, uh, you know, situation where, uh, you know, it's kind of this struggle. He makes it explicit. So let me just go back to the, to the review. He makes explicit his post-constitutional reflections and puts them into print. He describes the tools with which the progressive left, the blues, now impose their rule without regard to democratic consent and constitutional form. Like when I bring up the fact that the First Amendment was suspended for two months, there are like, uh, you know, a lot of people, even people in my church are like, well, what's the big deal? Yeah. You know, two months, you know, with these, with this, uh, these, these, uh, you know, these experts telling us we got to shut everything down. Let me go back to the, the article here. He also details possibilities for, uh, quote, red state counteraction. In portray- portraying these scenarios, Anton takes West Coast Straussian, Straussianism into new territory. He, tells, uh, he foretells the consolidation of blue rule, using their control of the administrative state, the media, uh, and cultural institutions. Blues will deprive reds of their ability to fight back through the only institutions the blues don't completely control. Uh, I'm, I'm, let me read that again. Blues will deprive reds of their ability to fight back through the only institutions the blues don't already completely control, political institutions. Uh, the political institutions fall into the hands of the blue, if, if or as the political institutions fall into the hands of the blues, America will become a one-party state. California writ large. Now we yeah. we all see this coming. Yeah, yeah, and and I do. I mean, I I mean, apart from the miraculous, if you will, I do see also a, a, a fundamental split coming. Um, you well, know, and seceding. That's what, yeah, and that's what he gets into next. So Anton describes a variety of situations that might arise as the quote big sort s o r t. Yeah. The partisan divide between blue and red America accelerates. Propelled by defund the police and pseudo egalitarian economic policies, the most unequal American cities are blue cities. Blue America could collapse mm-hmm. under the weight of its own contradictions, like you just brought out a little yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in Red America, the national one-party establishment, the elective monarchy, uh, could lose all its legitimacy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, he goes on to talk about uh, you know, something that I think is, is intriguing here. He, he, he gets into the fact that when, and this is the reviewer re- reflecting upon uh, Anton's review, uh, or Anton's book. Anton says, you know, we're going to have a, an effect, kind of uh, blue Caesar or red Caesar. But what what uh, the reviewer uh, says uh, is that, and that's uh, the reviewer is Pinowski. Pinowski. Uh, he, what he says is that the problem with with Anton's characterization is that I lose sight of something very important. And let me go back and read this. And this will be the last snippet that I read. Characterizing America's future regime as an elective monarchy, for example, is misguided. Monarchy, as developed in the West, is personalist, with sovereignty located in the person of the monarch. But by contrast, the ascent of the administrative state is the ascent of a statist order that dissolves the personalist element of sovereignty. A monarch exercises his own will. In the administrative state, the one who is ostensibly at the helm submits his own will to the cult of technocratic expertise. Now, how often have we heard governors and even the president say, I'm just doing what the experts tell me to do? So who's really running the show around here? Let me continue. Technocracy is mm. depersonalizing. 
which is one reason the administrative state inaugurates a very different constitution. Technocracy exalt, technocracy's exaltation of expertise is hostile to freedom and politics, and thus hostile to sovereignty. And the administrative state, the agency behind state power, is obscured by universal claims of efficiency. Bureaucrats impose, quote, best practices, not the will of any person. So what we're, what we're left with is a kind of fiat of best principles. And those are all guided by efficiency. And also, I would say, uh, an attempt to sort of uh, limit the range of uh, freedom that people can exercise, because freedom is risky. Yeah. People can do things that you can't predict. And yeah. we can't have that. That's right. We gotta control everybody. Yeah. Another stat for you, and I'm operating from memory here, but if I have this right, President Trump has... All right, well, first of all, we need to note that the legislature doesn't do most of the legislation. The legislature passes laws that it then hands off to the executive where unelected experts, bureaucrats, and so on, write the regulations to implement the laws. All right. The current state of the federal regulations, President Trump has eliminated 25,000 pages of regulations. That's why I voted for the guy. There He's are, a wrecking ball. There are currently another 72,000 pages to go, if my memory serves right. I'm pretty sure that's the, those are the correct numbers. Does he, have, does he have them in his sights? I hope so. <laughs> but, th but that's how you get three felonies a day. That's I mean, right. You know, that's that's right. the other part of this. Yeah. So... You know, and, and there are certain people who are constitutionally, uh, constitutionally, uh, you know, sort of, you know, sort of uh, made up that they just think that kind of control is just great. Well, and, and the thing about it is, once again, legislation is supposed to be done by the legislature, not the executive. Right. The entire constitutional system is breaking down. Right, right. And it gets back to the point that's being made here. Exactly. Post-constitutional yeah. America is not a, an America without a constitution. It's a new constitution that is an unwritten constitution that basically is being made up yeah. uh, and uh, is, the, is sort of the, the expression of the contempt of the elites yeah, uh, of, the, of the expert class and it, for the rest of us. And it, and Let's it, not say it's being made up. It's becoming. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, and didn't you know it was the original one, right? Um, but, but, that, but the thing you see also is kind of the, the kind of disparity of power that has already been lodged um, before a lot of people of concern even woke up to it or, or really felt like they could do anything about it. I mean, you, you now have a system in which elites can basically take this role, have special privileges, are not bound by the law in the same way, and can make it up however they want every day. And then you still have idiots by the bulk in this country who go on and on with nodding their head, yes. Um, you put a little entertainment and a few rap songs with it, and they're jumping up and down as if this is, you know, the new Messiah. Right. And, and it, it, it's just... Well, it, one of the things that they do, uh, expertise, experts make their money by undermining your confidence in your own judgment. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, you know, when I think about, you know, my ability to, 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 to order my own life, <laughs> yes... You know, there was a time earlier in my life when I was less competent than I am today. But the only way you acquire competence 
it's through it's it's through exercising your you know your your virtue you know and hopefully that virtue you know grows and becomes more capacious and uh, is more effective in the future but what you end up with with the with this sort of cult of expertise is a lot of people who just have no confidence and the idea that you know that the experts would let them you know alone is scary well and and uh, hmm. Lynn just pointed out the other the side of that coin is that the experts maintain their authority through fear oh yeah they create fear that's right and I think that one of the lessons that the administrative state is going to learn from COVID is that that's the most effective way of controlling people. Yeah, I, I, the, the thing that uh, alarms me about the whole phenomenon with COVID, I don't have any kind of crazy idea about, you know, some kind of uh, lab-created virus that is designed to get us in this, this situation. My, my thought is, is that there are a lot of people out there who are just really... Uh, good at taking advantage of things that come along. And so we have a situation now, there's a real problem. I mean, I've known, I've known, known people who've had COVID. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there is something out there. But uh, I also know that the measures that have been taken have lost people jobs, lost people businesses. There are people I know who have lost businesses. Um, and so the, the cure uh, doesn't seem to have... Uh, the ability to uh, address the well-being of the population at large, and, and and there are people who are paying the price for the approach that's been taken. Yeah, and it becomes an opportunity for for the control freaks to gain more control. That's it. And 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 punish those that they always want to punish and place a limit upon. I mean, you're seeing in New York City small businesses um, being continuously um, harassed um, and there there is a game being played there you're seeing um, churches and synagogues being limited and yet you're given the same well if the cause is is you know the kind of one we can write a, a check mark on you can go out and be together all you want a protest right, uh, right. and so I mean when you start seeing that selective application of things to the point well it's not a real big concern if uh, you know 6,000 people are protesting, but it is if, uh, you know, 400 people get together and go to church. I mean, you realize realize that, you know, anyone who's got a brain in their head realizes at some point, this is just, you know, I'm not going to say the word. Yeah, there's there's, (laughs) there's more than one thing. There's more than one thing going on. Anyway, (laughs) sort of wrap this up because we're at that point where we should wrap it up. Uh, I'm convinced that... uh, this, the, these guys at Claremont have it right. And there's, a, there's another book that is referred to in the, in the review that I've actually read. It's uh, by Christopher Caldwell entitled The, uh, the Age of Entitlement. Hmm. And The Age yeah. of Entitlement is a great book. It gets into the nature of the second constitution. Hmm. So the administrative state, the second constitution, the cult of expertise, these are the takeaways. Yeah. These are the things that we need to be aware of these are the things that are undermining uh, the, uh, the legitimacy and the, uh, of the uh, 1787 Constitution and the vitality of the, of the institutions that were uh, put in place to, to protect and to, uh, to uh, further the, 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 
the, the, you know, sort of the framework that that, that constitution, or strengthen the framework that that constitution was intended to, to, uh, to serve. Anyway, <laughs> any, any further thoughts you want to share with us, Glenn, before we wrap up? No, I think that, uh, I, I think that was a good summary of, of the uh, issues. Um, the real question that he barely touches on, but does start addressing is how do you get back? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Tom, anything else you want to say in conclusion? No, I think I've said enough. <laughs> yeah, me too. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. And with those happy thoughts, <laughs> those happy, happy thoughts, we say goodbye once again. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.